You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our next episode of Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm here today with Jenny Rudolph to talk about rapport as it pertains to simulation debriefing. This topic really got me interested because I read an editorial and then a subsequent article in Simulation in Healthcare. And we'll be talking a little bit about the article, but more about the topic. What does it mean to get to know and to use those relationships in our simulation debriefing? So our guest today is Jenny Rudolph, who will be known to many of our Simulcast listeners. Uh, As you know, she's the Executive Director at the Centre for Medical Simulation in Boston. As such, she's an organisational psychology person, uh, a researcher, a writer, a teacher, a debriefer. She's a mate of Simulcast and she's curious about all things psychological safety. How are you, Jenny? Great, Vic. Thanks so much for having me. And um, the little devil in me a couple times during that introduction was very tempted to interrupt in non-rapport building ways, but I restrained myself um, in hopes of getting our simulcast launched in a good way. But I think it's one of the interesting, funny things about rapport, which is our social norms help us have rapport, but also sometimes they can get in the way. So I'm delighted that you picked this topic. I think it's so interesting and important. And I was really excited to uh, see the article by uh, May Eng Liu and colleagues that kind of got us going on the um, editorial. Excellent. I think it will be a good topic. And the reason uh, for our listeners to be thinking about this is I think it relates back to the podcast that we did with you actually about 18 months ago now on psychological safety. Obviously, it's a separate topic, but it seems like it's related. And we're going to come back to that later. But I would just suggest to listeners, if you haven't gone back and listened to that podcast on psychological safety on the Simulcast website, you should do so now because there's a lot of gems that Jenny offers us there. Uh, And the article that Jenny just referenced we'll have in the blog post, but the other article that we'll reference in there is the editorial itself, and that's by Mark Auerbach and Adam Cheng and Jenny. So, Jenny, let's get into this. We sort of think we know what we mean when it comes to rapport in a general sense, but tell me, what does this mean when it comes to debriefing conversations? So, Vic, I'm kind of hoping we can think about this almost like a little onion model or something like that. I think it's so important because I think rapport is about the larger milieu of relatedness. And I think one of the big mistakes all educators make, myself included, (laughs) is to assume that learning is primarily a cognitive task. And there's so much rich work, starting with uh, infant studies, that we humans basically grow in a relational soup. And as moms and babies interact, as grownups, we interact. And how safe or unsafe we feel, how connected or unconnected we feel, has a huge impact on us almost at the um, cellular level, but I'll just say at the neurological level and psychological level. And so I'm kind of excited to talk about some of the specifics of rapport in that relational context. Yes. And there's, as you say, so much written about social learning or the social nature of learning. And this makes intuitive sense to us, doesn't it? Uh, I prefer the term milieu to soup, but I think I get, I know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So 
Um, I was so excited about um, May Ang Lu and uh, Charmaine Krishnasamy and Wes Shing Lim's article um, because I felt that they gave us some granular ideas about how to think about rapport. Honestly, if um, I'm like most people, I think it's a little intimidating, like you're supposed to somehow magically know how to build rapport. And if you flub it up, you're not exactly sure what you did wrong and where are the different pieces. Okay, well, let's get into that. Take us from, yeah, rapport is about getting to know each other a little more and showing that we're connected. And how do we take this into debriefing conversations? In debriefing, one of the things that we're doing is we're um, reflecting on, making sense of, analyzing, and then putting back together something that happened usually in a previous uh, simulation event. So one of the things we're doing is we're making sense of what's going on. So how do we build rapport in that context? The May Ang Lu article brings up these three topics. So one is identity, one is expectations, and one is goals. So I'm using the plain language for some of the more fancy rapport model words, which I think I should also use just so people are aware of them. So in debriefing, we have to manage something that they call face sensitivities, we have to manage something called sociality rights, and then we have to manage something called interactional goals. So when people come from simulation into debriefing, I think it's really important to remember their professional identity is often at stake. They just performed in a simulation, whether it's something um, in situ or in center or procedural, it's usually something they care about in terms of their ability to do a clinical task. So um, in the work that you and I have talked about that you're doing at Gold Coast, if I'm a doctor who has to get the patient from the door of the emergency department all the way through to the cath lab in a certain amount of time, and everybody just saw how the patient came through and saw how I handled my bit, if I did a great job, wonderful. If I did a so-so job, okay. And if I felt like I didn't do a great job, my professional identity is at stake. And that has to do with this sociological concept of face. Like everybody wants to preserve their face. And so in debriefings, if I bring things up in a way that show that I respect their effort, that I respect who they are as a person, that I get that even if they zigged when they wished they had zagged, they're still a caring professional in the debriefing than I am uh, managing that face sensitivity. I am respecting their identity. And that might come through by conveying to them that I recognize how hard that particular task was, or I've been there and made that same mistake. So I'm going to hark back again to that podcast we did because you described in some detail that element of this evaluation apprehension about it actually is an identity threat to participate oh. in simulation for many people. And what you've just described, I think you again used some slightly different words in that podcast, but about uh, sharing your own vulnerabilities as a debriefer and about normalizing things as a way of preserving those face sensitivities. Is that right? Yeah, that's, I'm so happy you brought that up because that re-clarifies it in an important way, I think. One of the things I see frequently when I'm working with debriefers on their skills is they'll have a 
really helpful observation. I'll take the example of managing parent presence, which I think is something that a lot of people are trying to do more and more in pediatrics. So um, an example might be a person has an observation that I noticed you turned your back on mom while you were trying to put in the intraosseous line. And then the point of view on that might be something like, well, I think you're ignoring her um, really escalated her anxiety. So if I leave it there as a debriefer and then just go ahead with my inquiry, the implication is if you were a good and caring person, you would not have turned your back on mom and you wouldn't have left her hanging out there by herself. And what the heck's the matter with you? And that would be example of not, in my view, managing um, face sensitivities. In contrast, if you said that same observation, that same point of view, and then you threw in something to convey your empathy or recognition of the difficulty, you know, I've been in those situations too, you might say. I've been in those situations too. And it's so distracting because putting in an intraosseous line for me is still a little uh, dicey. So I understand, you know, why a person might turn their back on mom, but help me understand what was going on for you. So this is super interesting because the other way that you could think about that, I'm going to call you out here, isn't that yeah. somehow climbing up the ladder of inference? Aren't you potentially giving them a frame instead of actually seeking out theirs? I, I, I know where you're coming from, but I think with a little tension here. Absolutely. Uh, it's so funny that you say that, Vic, because as I, as I gave that little moment of empathy, I had that same little self-correcting voice going in my mind um, saying, yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm committing the crime that Dan Raymer calls an inferential question, or I'm, I'm putting my inference in there already. So let's just talk about this moment between us. You just called me out on the podcast on putting an inference in my inquiry, which is a clear mistake. But I saw your comment as helping me or as helping our audience understand what was going on. I didn't feel like you were trying to shame me, which is, by the way, the downside of messing up um, face sensitivities. If, if you mess up and, and uh, don't manage identity well, one of the things that your learners may feel is shame, which is a pretty extreme thing. But in this case, that didn't happen. So why was that? Why didn't your correction of me zing me at the identity level? Okay, so the second part of managing um, rapport that uh, these uh, wonderful authors discuss is what they call sociality rights or sociality rights, which is managing expectations. And I love this concept because as a former athlete, I think I often do best when I feel like the there's a level playing field. That is, the rules are the same for everybody. I know what the rules are. So I would argue that because you and I have done a podcast together, we you know worked on our talk at Smack together, and I'm very used to, and I expect you to give me good feedback. That's part of why I value you as a colleague. So the fact that you would give me a zingy feedback moment, to me, that's like, whoa, that's fun. Thank goodness. I love Vic. It's so great that she catches these things and bring these, brings these things up. So my expectations of playing fair are being met. And so for that reason, even though somebody else might have experienced that 
feedback is like, oh my God, she's calling me out in the middle of the podcast. How embarrassing. I was like, woohoo. So these things can interact dynamically. Yeah. So I won't want to just pick up on that a little bit because inherent in that is that I've made some kind of assessment about how my feedback, as you call it, is going to go over. And this comes down to the incredible nuance, I think, in this concept is that you really have to think about your audience, as it were, or your debriefees and think, what is how I'm going to say come across in terms of the relationship? Is it going to threaten it or is it going to enhance it? Exactly right. And one of the things that people push back on me about quite a bit is um, the kind of intercultural expectations around debriefing with good judgment. Because one of the things I advocate for is being relatively straightforward. And I even talk about spicy feedback often being really useful and fun. Um, But I really think that these three aspects of rapport that the authors bring up have to all work in concert. So I'm going to go ahead to the third one. You gave me spicy feedback. I was happy about it because I thought it enriched the conversation and was very fair and reasonable feedback. My expectations were met that my colleague Vic would give me clear feedback. But part of the other reason that works for you and me is the third aspect of um, the rapport model, which is, quote unquote, interactional goals. And so one of my goals in interacting with people is getting better at what I do, enjoying the conversation. And so the spicy feedback met my expectations and helps me reach my goals of getting better at what I do or having an interesting conversation. So I think that circles back to your point that there's some nuance in connecting all these different things together. And so perhaps as an Australian and as an American, we're okay with pretty direct conversation and pretty direct feedback with each other. It's possible that had you been interviewing somebody from a possibly more hierarchical culture or with a different set of norms than I have, uh, your initial feedback might not have landed so well and might have weakened rapport a little bit. You Americans always think you understand us Australians, but uh, <laughs> I get your point. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so let me just recap here so because we've, we've covered a fair bit of ground. So there's these three elements to it. One is about so-called face sensitivities, managing this identity threat, having various techniques to do that. The second is about these sociality rights. This has to be perceived as fair for our debriefees. We haven't tricked them. We're not going to trick them. We're not going to threaten their psychological safety through guess what I'm thinking questions and a whole range of other things. And finally, we've got these interactional goals. Uh, The people in our debrief room are going to bring with them all kinds of expectations about what they're going to get out of this that we might be able to shape to a fair degree. So that's my kind of summary so far. So yeah, let's keep going from there. Okay. And rapport, creating connectedness, the better that you can pre-brief before the simulation around what are the expectations and elicit from the learners some of theirs, the more likely you are to play fair uh, during the debriefing. And then the last piece is, again, sort of pre-briefing and working with the learners 
to find out what are their goals? What did they hope to get out of this? Why are they here? Um, the more that you create some shared agreements around the expectations and goals, which are somewhat more discussable than identity, the less likely you are to blow rapport. Great summary. And I suppose I feel a little lucky in some ways doing work with in-situ participants, uh, but also with departments, because you talk about building up these uh, goals or talking about them within the simulation session. But I suppose a lot of us are working with these folks every day. And as my colleague Jesse Spur says, if you're an idiot every day or you've got a certain persona every day, bringing a different one to the debrief room is not going to work. And mm -hmm. so in some ways, these expectations have been built up in the workplace already and debriefing becomes an extension of workplace conversations. And if you're not creating and maintaining rapport in those situations, you're probably not going to be able to do it in the debriefing. Uh, well said. I, you know, I think that people um, build up expectations um, about you over time and consistency is, I think, one of the fertilizers or nurturers of rapport, or I guess it could be a contributor to lack thereof. But if you say one thing and do another, I'm going to find it less easy to trust you, which I believe pours into rapport to a certain extent. Excellent. So is it all right if we return then? Because I still want to try and tease out this tension or rather explain a little about this identity threat versus renegotiating frames of behavior. And the reason I bring this up is because I think many of us are very keen to try and preserve, maybe we don't call it that, but I think we are trying to preserve people's ego and hence we are nice in debriefing mm -hmm. and we're not going deep on, are you sure that's what you wanted to do because I think that's a really bad idea, but we don't go there because we go, oh, I want to preserve their identity. So how do we be direct and nice? Uh, how do we expose frames for negotiation without exposing identity to be threatened? I think one of the most challenging things about caring personally while challenging directly, as Kim Scott says, or the way that I've been thinking about it is how do I hold myself or others to high standards while also holding them in high regard? The biggest challenge in debriefing is most of us neurologically and psychologically, when we see someone do something wrong, when they don't meet the standard, we assume they are wrong and they're wrong for being wrong. We are wired to assume they meant to do the wrong thing and we tend to make attributions about them that are quite negative. And that's really the heart of the dilemma of how do you surface someone else's frames while um, maintaining rapport with them. It's essentially this weird reframe for yourself, which is you've got to believe that person was trying to do something good. They're intelligent, capable, trying to do their best and want to improve. If you think they're an idiot and you're spending all your energy covering over that you think they're an idiot, it's very difficult to authentically explore what they're thinking. And it's going to leak out terribly uh, because it's going to be obvious. So what you're saying is merely giving positive feedback in no way helps those folks preserve their identity. And in fact, it also seems to think that you're coming across as somewhat manipulative and without integrity. Absolutely. 
All right, I'm going to take a slight sideline here. Great. And it's sort of related to rapport, but one of the things that I see and experience and talk about with fellow debriefers is how their cognitive load prevents them having that positive regard. It's not actually that they want to think any ill of the folks who are in the debrief room with them, but they tend to be trying to remember so much stuff and thinking about what they're going to be talking about that I think that actually compromises their ability to be generous. That is fascinating. So my cognitive load went up as you were saying that, Vic, as I was really trying to process and I was thinking really hard about that. Um, and I'm just narrating my situation because how do I stay in contact with you and what you're saying when you bring up such an interesting idea and it takes me a little while to process it? Hmm. I love it because this is what happens in a debrief, isn't it? You have to you either fill a gap with some words like you just did or you pause and say, just give me a moment and I'm going to think about that, which is what politicians should probably do more often. If I am listening to respond uh, versus listening to understand, I cannot connect with you in the same way. So I, I agree. I think that maybe part of what we need to do is give ourselves permission to listen and pay attention to the other person and uh, shut off the cognitive processing for a moment. I don't think this is easy, but I do think I know this is not specifically about rapport, but I think we're able to generate more rapport when we're not thinking about some of the other aspects of debriefing. And so that's why I think the idea of having a structure is good because it removes a lot of micro decisions for us to make. It's why when we know our scenarios, we can often manage more rapport because we're not thinking as much about what our topics will be because we, when, when we ran this scenario the last 25 times, these were the kinds of things that came up. And so we've got a little model for some of our conversations. So I do think this is incredibly important, but it will be enhanced through all those other debriefing skills that you and others talk about. Well, I think what you're talking about um, indirectly here, uh, Vic, is expertise. So if I am in a place with my debriefing where I am still consciously processing and having to do deliberate decision-making around, am I going right or am I going left? Am I going to the generalization phase? Am I versus am I, do I have the skills automatically down enough so that I can listen and respond? I agree that will make it a lot easier for me to attend to what is happening with the other person. I often give the analogy in our um, simulation educator courses of uh, taking a social history because about, or taking any history, because about halfway through the week, uh, people sometimes come up to me and say, wow, Jenny, this is really hard. I, I don't know how you do it. You make it look so easy. And I say, yeah, uh, this is pretty much all I do all the time. And if you had started teaching me on Monday how to take a history, especially the awkward social history part, you would see me using a script. You would see me uh, thinking a lot. You would see me breaking rapport because I had to be internally focused on the mechanics of what I'm doing. So I think one of the nice points you're making here, Vic, is 
part of rapport building or connecting requires that we have some of the mechanics of whatever we're doing down enough so that they're not uh, in the way of, of perceiving what's going on with the other person. Mm, precisely, because it's not just about uh, a skill set, although I think that's where I'd like to kind of move to. So we recognize that our debriefing itself is happening within a uh, social milieu. Our ability to form and convey rapport is going to be affected by a whole bunch of other things that are going on for us and for our team members. So it's a good thing. So how do we actually go about enhancing it and creating it? Can we move on to some of the particular skills that people might need to break out in their debriefings? I think I'll start with a quick summary of what I think the things that we need to do are that relate to the rapport model. That, and by the way, we haven't mentioned the name. It's the Spencer OT uh, rapport model. And May Ang Lu and colleagues applied that to a study of debriefing and simulation. So I'm going to summarize, mm-hmm. I think, the things we need to do with that model, and then I'm going to move on to a couple other things. So first, if, if you want to man- manage or help connect around identity, expectations, and goals, um, our research in creating the debriefing assessment for simulation in healthcare and other related debriefing things finds grownups need predictability. So uh, in your pre-briefing and along the way in your debriefing, anything that you can say or do that conveys your interest and respect for their professional identity and their hard work and what they're doing will help, I think, create a groundwork for rapport. Being clear about the expectations, anything as even as basic as, you know, this simulation is going to be approximately 10 minutes long and the debriefing is going to be approximately 20 minutes long and we're going to have a break for lunch at such and such a time. Um, those kinds of things really help people feel secure and know what to expect. And then lastly, um, trying to meet their goals about what they think is important. So this goes essentially to perhaps some of the educational design and needs assessment, which is when you even think about your simulation program, what are the things that the department cares about the most or the individuals care about the most? I think as an example, Vic, one of the things I really admire again about what you've shared with me uh, that you all are doing at, at Gold Coast Hospital is you're thinking about what does this department care about most? What's their biggest problem now? or What's their biggest goal? Think about how that inherently builds um, uh, connection and rapport and relationality into the sim without even trying if you're solving a problem they really care about. You're listening to Simulcast. So moving to what can I do immediately and quietly and perhaps even somewhat out of people's awareness in a debriefing to build rapport, we really need to move a little bit to some of the nonverbal aspects of rapport, such as the pacing at which we speak. For example, if I talk a lot slower than you do, Vic, uh, in a debriefing and you keep coming in as the debriefer and speaking really, really quickly and then kind of moving things along and and um, uh, taking it to a different subject, and then I join back in and I kind of share my thinking slowly, I inherently am going to feel mismatched by you as the debriefer, and that may uh, weaken rapport. So a simple thing that any debriefer can do is 
match the uh, pacing of other people in the debriefing. And that may mean adjusting a little bit to different learners. And it involves a high degree of self-awareness. I had just this experience with someone I was helping to do some debriefing. And as she was in there, I thought, wow, she's talking loud and fast and it's coming across as quite aggressive. And so as a co-debriefer, a couple of times I chimed in and I listened to myself and I was talking quite slowly and at a lower volume. And I we talked about it later when we did a debrief the debrief and it was such a reaction of mine to what I perceived as a lack of rapport. And of course, not surprisingly, and I guess it comes back to our former point, she said to me, I'm just trying to remember all the stuff I need to do. And so I'm anxious. And so that comes across as I know I talk loud and fast when I'm anxious. So that's exactly your point. You need to know what your own body language and vocal ticks are and go-tos are because it may or may not get in the way of rapport building. Well, and what you're saying is so important, Vic, that our nonverbal behaviors have a un- conscious and often important impact on other people's feeling about what's going on. One of the things I think about in my debriefing and especially in pre-briefing is people are paying as much or more attention to my facial expressions, my body position, the tone of my voice as to anything I'm saying. So if I appear relaxed, if I appear interested if I uh, seem to feedback what they're saying to me by doing some paraphrasing and so on, I can build rapport and buy myself a lot of leeway uh, for messing up the actual words I might say by working on meeting people in a pacing level in terms of how fast I speak or how fast they're speaking. Other things, as you said, are volume. The other thing is some really, really subtle stuff like uh, how people are sitting. Often if you very subtly and gradually match their physical positioning, that also can be a subtle way of building rapport. There's a process called matching and leading. So for example, with the colleague, the co-debriefer that you were talking about who was speaking rather loud and fast, you might, as the co-debriefer, be able to match her pacing and volume. So you might be able to meet her right here and say, hey, yes, Sally, I really see your point there. And what I'm thinking about it is that it's important for us to engage it in such and such a way. So if you hear what I just did there, I matched the volume and pace initially, and then I led back down to a different level. And this is very interesting because I see this every day, and I actually had a pleasant surprise with that debrief the debrief because I've always harbored this assumption I suppose that talking about things like voice and body language is really personal and it's really going to get to that level of identity threat but when I opened it up as a topic for conversation the person concerned was really receptive and almost relieved and they were looking for some of those things you talked about but what I want to ask you is how much can we fake this versus it just has to be us is this model and are these techniques truly able to be prescriptive or are they still just descriptive and uh, we are who we are? My understanding of the nonverbal rapport building techniques is they can 
absolutely be built. They take some care and patience and practice because you can imagine that doing it badly, or by which I mean doing it in a way that lands on the other person like you're mimicking them, could absolutely have the opposite impact. But part of this is really almost a clinical perception skill, which I imagine a lot of um, my clinical colleagues like you have. So when you walk into a, a bay in your emergency department, I suspect you can just look at a patient and be like, whew, they're sick. And part of what I suspect you're noticing there is maybe their respiration rate, their skin tone, all kinds of signs and symptoms. And all we're doing here in building nonverbal rapport is turning those clinical perceptual skills to a different task. Anything that gets you in sync with most humans slowly builds rapport. So this is this is pretty interesting and pretty important. And I think pleasantly draws on some of the things that we hope we've achieved or trying to achieve in the clinical realm, which is building rapport with our patients. And you're saying that recognizing and responding to those physical cues is a really important part of it. Yes. So uh, was there more that you want to say about voice and body language? I could imagine somebody listening to this podcast going, oh my God, that Jenny Rudolph is the most manipulative person I have ever heard. I can't believe she's recommending that I like match people's pacing of their speaking or pay attention to their respiration and match that as isn't that like below the level of consciousness and and is that fair any of these quote unquote techniques of building rapport can be used uh, for light or dark um, so it I try to think about this as uh, influencing with integrity so I want to use my commitment to helping other people, be their best self and my commitment to trying to be honest and, you know, straightforward with people and use these techniques in that way. Uh, and they certainly can be used in other ways, but I'm not advocating that. So with great power comes great responsibility. You're quoting from Spider-Man, of course. Of course. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's a really important point. And just last night, Ben and I were talking on our monthly Journal Club podcast about the impact that that participation in simulation has on the educators. And uh, I would say this is just another one of those things where the training that we have for debriefing has so much more far-reaching opportunities because it's potentially going to make us better at our interactions in meetings, in interviews, in the clinical environment. So I don't think you should have any shame about suggesting that an awareness of these things is, is uh, very powerful. Yeah. Simulcast. One other point I wanted to dive into, and I guess it relates to the fact also that the authors of this paper are from Singapore, and that is that what you, Jenny Rudolph, might perceive as a fair conversation about your uh, reasons for doing things in an open and direct way won't threaten your identity. But I'm going to suggest that for some of us, there is a closer relationship between the two. Am I wrong on that? Or how are we going to deal with that in this general idea about rapport? Uh, so Vic, I think you're raising a really important and very difficult question, which is how do we make moves to build rapport in cultures different than our own? 
Why this is so tricky is what are the tacit expectations and what are the learning goals, for example, in a debriefing? They could be completely different. And in terms of how face sensitivities are managed in different cultures, those also can be extremely different. I know colleagues from Japan and China and India all have different takes on this than I do as an American. Yeah, so this is uh, hard even when you're aware of the cultural divide. I suppose it's particularly difficult when we might not even know what we're missing when it comes to these nuances. There's no real easy workaround here, in my view. It really takes deliberate, careful work. I think that's where caring personally and challenging directly yourself is important. If you do violate some cultural expectation and you notice it, that you try to then make that discussable and part of the discussion and and a learning point and, and that you're willing and open to learn. But paradoxically, that could be the exact wrong thing to do in certain cultures that, you know, that showing that level of vulnerability shows that you're not a good teacher and don't know what to do. I think you're right. Uh, We're going to make mistakes and maybe just as in talking about naming the dynamic, particularly if we're with people that we don't know, and I'm not just going to restrict this to national cultures either, but we should probably say there are going to be conversational norms, there are going to be agendas, there are going to be issues that you folks have got in-house that I'm not aware of. Mm. If I say something that doesn't seem to fit with that, uh, call me out on that because I really want to make this conversation useful for you. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, so we've covered a fair bit of ground here, Jenny, and we probably Probably should start to think about wrapping it up. But rapport is important, I think, is uh, our take-home message. There are some elements to that rapport management that we need to think about. Face sensitivities and people's sense of identity. How do we maintain that, maintain that positive regard while still opening up a conversation? Uh, secondly, people have sociality rights. They want to be playing fair in these conversations. And thirdly, There are interactional goals where folks will bring with them what they expect to get out of this, how they expect to interact with each other, and our rapport management is going to focus on that as well. It obviously connects to the things we've talked about with psychological safety and good practice uh, in many of those regards is going to help us with our rapport management. Pay attention to our voice and body language. Be aware of how we come across and I guess, be the best version of ourselves that we can be rather than trying to be a different person. Are there other things now that you wanted to add before we uh, wrap up here? I think that covers it, Vic. Brilliant. Well, uh, just a reminder for our listeners, we've been talking about rapport management in debriefing with Simulcast and with uh, Jenny Rudolph. I'll put the links to the papers that we've been discussing as well as a couple of the references that Jenny has made to some interesting Uh, theoretical and practical elements of this topic. So if you're interested, also go along and add some comments on the blog post, www.simulationpodcast.com. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time. And a huge thank you, Jenny. It's been illuminating. Wonderful to talk, Vic, as always. Simulcast.